Good evening. What's the Good evening. Hey, Robert. Parker, Stacy, Janine, hey. Dr. Hayes, coming in hot. Coming in real <laughs> Three hot. Three Times Dope podcast. We want to welcome everybody to this uh, episode uh, talking about uh, access to food as a human right um, with uh, some amazing folks from uh, Share Our Strength, but also want to bring Parker and Hayes in. Fellas, what y'all been up to since the last last time we saw each other? Man, <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like this this one month thing has been so long, man. It's, it's been so much going on, but uh, I've, I've been able to connect with some other Yesterday, I, I was hanging out with the Woke Aunties on their podcast and, and part of the Eight Black Hands. So that's what I've been doing, man, trying to make connections across uh, across the network, man. I love it. I love it. Hey, so much can change in a month. I think the last time I saw you all, I was working virtually. And so today was the first day that we reported back to school. And so I How was the first day, Hayes? Yo, you'd be surprised. Listen, I am tired. I'm not even gonna lie. Like honestly, I was doing professional development for staff, and I realized I have not stood up for like three hours straight for the past 10 months. And so just like little things that you miss around like running a schedule, you can't necessarily log out of the Zoom and go to the bathroom, um, things like everyone has access. So all of a sudden, you know, it used to be in the, in, in the virtual space. If I don't want to talk to you, then I don't schedule a Zoom meeting or I don't pick up a text message or the phone call. Now everybody's knocking on the door. Can I get like five minutes of your time? When I check, I was so tired of talking to people by the end of the day. Um, so yeah, that that is where I am, just balancing uh, the return to school. So we had all of our staff back and we'll have them for the next two weeks. And then students come back on the 15th. Congratulations, man. You know, I'm uh, definitely going to be uh, praying uh, for you, uh, for everybody going back to school, um, giving out blessings along the way um, and all them things. Uh, make sure you text me during the day instead of cussing at people because you're mad because you want to go back to the crib. Listen, I don't cuss. I don't cuss at people. I just go find a secret room that is empty in the back of the building and, you know, Make do. I love that you said congratulations as if it was a gift and a reward for me to return. Uh, I, I mean, am just merely a principal who does what he is told, and I was told in my building. Wow. And so, therefore, I am back in this building, and it is open. Parker, Hayes acting like he has no critical thinking, no like influence. I'm just going to let that sit right there, there with Dr. Go. Hayes because of his brilliance. Uh, it will come out and always does. Uh, well, I'm excited to see y'all brothers. Um, I've been enjoying uh, fantasy basketball since we last talked. Um, so I'm just letting letting my folks know in the fantasy basketball league that I'm coming for y'all tonight. Uh, I'm going for that chip um, this uh, season. And also um, have been excited about this article that we just had released through the University of Michigan about black men in early childhood education. So mm -hmm. I want to shout out my colleagues uh, for that and all the people who have uh, shared it and uh, continue to push the dialogue. So I want to hop right in um, with our guests, uh, give them a chance to talk about their organization first, but also like their work, what brought them to this space um, from the great state of Texas, yeah, um, bigger yeah, yeah. than life, 
Um, Hayes, you know, everybody in Texas, they like New York. You know what I mean? Like everything is bigger in Texas. <clears throat> Listen, there are there are a few places where like their 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 state pride just trumps all like American patriotism, right? I think like oh, Texas yeah. in general, Houston, Dallas considered to be separate. All your pride is different. New York, New Orleans, Philly's right up there, but there are just some places you go where they love their home more than anything. Texas, Texas being one of those places. What? I mean, yeah. you know, and these two uh, dope, amazing, brilliant sisters, like I've had many a conversation with them and they always amaze me with their brilliance, their careers um, and uh, their work in particular around race is so important, microaggressions, all sorts of amazing things. So I want to turn it over to Stacy and Janine just to talk about share our strength, the type of work the organization does, but also just about the work that y'all are doing in Texas. And then we'll dive in with some specific questions because I'm, I'm trying to understand how, how in America do you have your own power grid? And then when it doesn't work, you blame other people. I'm we just saying. Right we're not even going to be in Texas. Oh, sorry. Like, we're not at that point. Hello, okay. how are you? We're not going back at all. Oh, Robert, you're coming in too hot. You're coming in too hot right now. Okay. You're at an 11. Okay, but I, I hear you. And trust me, we we uh, we feel what you're saying. And, you know, we're here. We're on the ground. So thank you all so much for having us um, today. So um, as Robert said, my name is Stacy Sanchez-Hare. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and Aya. I am a proud native Texan. And uh, Mr. Hayes, Dr. Hayes, I will share that I lived in New York City for 15 years. So I totally understand that comparison. Like, New Yorkers and Texans have a tremendous amount of straight of state pride, right? We're very proud of where we're from. Um, and, you know, Texas is just, uh, you know, very iconic and very have filled with state pride and civichood, which we really needed um, over the last two weeks. So, um, you know, just a little bit about Share Our Strength and, and um, the No Kid Hungry campaign. So, I serve as the Texas director for the No Kid Hungry campaign and our parent organization, Share Our Strength, where Robert and I and Janine all work, uh, is an incredible organization. And our, our campaign, the No Kid Hungry campaign, is focused on ending childhood hunger um, and connecting families to um, federal and local state um, nutritional programs um, and, and really just um, working beside communities, seeing communities as experts um, in their neighborhoods and, and working beside them. Um, and that is really, I think, the, the heart and the values and the culture of our work. And uh, if I were to talk really broadly about kind of the things that I do, um, we really uh, do, I kind of think of it in three buckets. We do grant making, right? And um, last year in, in 2020, really, and since the onset of COVID, and y'all, I can't believe we are at our one-year mark. I'm having like, it's a little triggering, to be honest. Um, but we are in the last year since the onset of COVID, um, No Kid Hungry Texas uh, granted over $4.5 million um, in every kind of corner of the state and it's a big state. And so we were we were really fortunate to do a lot of emergency grant funding for um, food banks, school districts, um, you know, faith-based institutions, uh, really kind of, uh, it strayed a little bit from what we normally would completely be focused on, which is um, the breakfast gap. And that still remains a part of our, uh, you know, a huge part of our identity and focus and work. Um, but, you know, just like the rest of the world, right, we had to pivot and think about the needs today. And um, I would say the things that really drive us are thinking about uh, increasing meal participation, curbside, grab-and-go meals, um, you know, getting buses out to the communities so folks can get meals, even if they're 
students are learning virtually. Um, so that is that is just like a little high level overview um, of what we do at No Kid Hungry uh, Texas. And Robert, I'm sorry, I forgot your second. Oh, how are we doing in Texas? Or do you want me to let let me let let me let Janine introduce herself, and then I'll I'll pivot back to Texas. All right, cool. Um, so I'm not trying to make enemies, um, but I'm originally from California. <laughs> I love Texas, love Texas. Honestly, never thought I would because West Coast, I mean, I didn't even visit Texas before we came to live here. But since I've been here for 16 years, I love it. I call it home. Um, I feel like Texas needs me as much as I need it. The diversity is the conversations I get to have that I've never had in my life create so many opportunities for learning in myself and being able to open up spaces that I never thought I would uh, walk into. So I feel like that's part of, you know how, like when you say, when you be careful what you ask for. And so if you ask for patience, if you ask for challenges, if you ask for growth, it's gonna come. And so I feel mm -hmm. like I have that wonderful opportunity being here and being uh, not a native, um, having a different uh, background that I get challenged and I get to challenge people as well. But I just, um, so I'm the veteran in the group. Uh, I started about a year ago at Share Our Strength, but no veteran, I mean, no, um, not new to the work in terms of working with schools. I worked a decade in schools, creating healthier school environments. And then with Share Our Strength, it's just so great because they really do look for your strength. How do we find that best in each other? How do we uplift each other? It's an organization that um, really is open to new ideas, to listening, and that translates when we work with communities on the ground. So we listen to folks and, hey, what are you doing? What What's gonna work? It's not just, oh, mm -hmm. let me help you in this space. For example, um, I work in the Center for Best Practices. So I'm one of the senior program managers and we look for innovations, like what's gonna work? What are the best practices that we're hearing across the nation that maybe we can implement in Texas and we can implement in New York, we can implement in Virginia, we can move it across to Chicago. What's going on? Just two examples that happened during the pandemic were, um, you know, like Stacy mentioned, there's meals coming to the homes and in one community in South Texas, no one, the kids were not coming out to get those meals. And so the school leaders put their heads together, like, what can we do? What's going on? And they um, decided, well, you know what? Kids always come out to the ice cream truck song. So they got that song, put it on a bus, roll through and guess what lining up kids lining up to come out and get their free meals yes. so we're like that is wonderful let's highlight that work um just another quick innovation that we heard is there's the uh this mom blogger group that they just started taking pictures of the meals highlighting the meals because some sometimes like you said kids get tired of the meals or there's misconceptions about what's being served um is it healthy? Is it tasty? And so they were just giving their input, connecting to their groups and making sure the kids are fed. So we're open to all different ideas and really looking, like Stacy said, to our partners on the ground because they are the experts. Um, we, we had a question in the chat about, what did y'all think about uh, Michelle Obama's uh, healthy food initiatives? So 
wonderful. I got to work with, with the initiative. So our organization was called upon to give um, guidance to the Obama administration at the time they were starting out. And so she came to visit and I was on the long list but I did not make it to the short list, but that's okay. As long as the school leaders in Dallas were highlighted, um, she really promoted uh, gardening and eating healthy and moving and making this all just part of just bringing in culture. Cause I believe that everyone thinks about um, food is not just food. It goes back to who you are. It goes back to your, you know, your family it, in every culture. It, it has a special place. And so she really brought that back to healthy, tasty, important cooking. Um, she just really yeah. did, you know, that that message and brought it, made it popular again, which is was yeah. really amazing. That's right. That's right. Hayes Parker, what you got? <laughs> you, you you tossing it over to us for the for the questions, brother. Um, I think. <laughs> One question uh, right off the back is, you know, Dr. Simmons had already went there, but we just want to jump right into Texas and how things are going. How did you and your family navigate the storm uh, in Texas? Oh, that is a great question. Um, so, as you all know, uh, winter storm Uri uh, hit uh, all of Texas right after Valentine's Day weekend. I think that Sunday is when it started feeling really, really cold. And I just shared with y'all, like I used to live in New York. I lived through like 15 winters. Like, you know, I think um, a lot of folks, and I'm not saying it's not true, but a lot of people are like, oh, South doesn't know how to deal with winter or like deal with snow. And I guess what I really just wanted to say is like, it was just so much more than a storm, you know? And um, I personally, my family and I lost power for about 14 hours uh, when I went to bed Monday. And when I woke up Tuesday, I could like see my breath in my own home. And it was, it was 12 degrees outside. It was very, very cold. And we just, um, you know, didn't, well, we were very lucky is what I'll say. We were much, much lucky than a lot of other folks, but it went on for quite some time. There were warm blackouts, people were being asked to boil their water. Um, so there was just a lot <clears throat> that came with it. Um, and our own team, our No Kid Hungry team was was pretty much out for the week because we just didn't have power. And so, um, and I think it put a lot of Texans in just, uh, you know, thinking about the the compounded, right, crises of COVID and, and a winter storm. A lot of people were really in a place of making kind of life and death decisions, right? You know, am I going to stay warm and isolated or am I going to go to my brother's house who has heat, you know, and and, and pot up with folks. And so, um, I, I'm, you know, there was a lot of loss and a lot of like tragedy. And, you know, I'm, I think in response to that, what we are trying to do uh, organizationally is just, you know, we want to think about how we can reach out to communities and engage them. We have, we gave $20,000 to Feeding Texas the week of the storm um, as an emergency grant. Feeding Texas oversees the food banks in the state of Texas. And so we just really, you know, are, are trying to get out there, talk to folks. Um, we've been talking to some mayor's office and, and talking to our people on the ground to try to figure out where the need is. And, I, you know, I know y'all saw the pictures probably, right, in, in the, the paper and in, um, the paper uh, and, and like social media and all these other places. But um, it really was like it wasn't just that it was cold and it was present. 
we couldn't drive anywhere. You know, we don't have salt trucks. We don't have plows. I don't have a shovel. And so, I mean, when I say, I mean, I'm a born and raised San Antonian. Um, it snowed once when I was seven years old. And I, you know, it's happened like once every year in the last three years. So, you know, I'm just saying like, it's, it's changed. You know, we have to think about our preparedness and our responses to like when things like this happen. Um, and, but, you know, mostly just like grateful that my family's healthy and everyone's okay. And, uh, and now we're kind of, we're out engaging our communities actively and trying to figure out how we can support them. Yeah. Got it. Janine, what about you? Yeah. So oof, like Stacy mentioned, it started out here in Northern Texas and in Fort Worth with a 133 car pileup because that's no right. ice. So that's when it started. I went to the supermarket that Friday not to stock up on anything because I was like, oh, some snow's coming. All the supermarkets were full. The lines were going all the way back to like the frozen food section, like if you're in line at the front. So I was like, oh, no big deal, right? By the time I decided, oh, I better get some groceries, there weren't any groceries in the store. So the, the everything was bare. People had gone, they, they got what they could get. And just something to think about, like not everybody has the resources to stockpile, right? They don't have the transportation. They may not have that um, ability. And so that really puts some people at a huge disadvantage um, in comparison to others. And then those who didn't have the foresight to go and get groceries sooner, like myself. Um, but like Stacy mentioned, also, it wasn't that oh, I, I need to go get gas. The, the gas stations aren't open. That's right. Um, and then when we did go to the grocery store, the lights went out. So the power went out while we were there. So the power outages wow. were very real. Um, I'd never been in a big department store, grocery store, when it's completely black. Luckily, we had our cell phones. Um, but like wow. Stacy mentioned as well, people were piling up and doing whatever yeah. they could. We had two of my daughter's friends come stay with us. Neighbors were moving around from this block. They all lost power. Some were staying with the neighbors on the other block. Um, so there is that increased risk during the pandemic for, you know, do I freeze this or do I risk this deadly disease? And so they were dealing with a lot and also just um, I was looking at the livestock that were lost, the crops that were lost, like dairy had to throw out millions, eight million, I believe, of, of milk daily um, that couldn't be used. It couldn't be uh, uh, stored. Um, it was just like a domino effect, like Stacy said. Mm. So. Yeah. We asked some people in uh, the chat asking if you all flew to Cancun. I'm assuming that you didn't. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying. Just putting it Sadly out there. Sadly, no. Uh, Sadly, no. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear you. Um, I, I guess I'm curious as you think about um, the storm itself. What impact did it had it have in Black and Brown communities when it comes to access to food um, and quality food during that time? And what did Share Our Strength and other organizations do? to support uh, the community um, along the way. And one, before you answer that question, can we also, I know that we are talking as if it is past tense, and I know mm. that there are still some families who are living in That's it. That's right. Yeah. 
So if you can kind of talk about like the work that you have done as it relates to the, the storm and what you are currently doing and what still remains yeah. to be done. And Dr. Hayes, that's an excellent point because, um, you know, I was, there was a really good uh, New York Times podcast that I listened to Monday morning. It was like after the Texas storm and it, it talked about uh, three women in Dallas and their experience. And um, something that really resonated with me is that, um, you know, disproportionately black and brown communities, um, lower income folks, right? They, they were hit earliest and the hardest and it takes the longest for them to recover, right? And so, um, you know, I sit in, you know, a, certainly a place of, of privilege and, and, you know, being able to have resources and a home and a roof over my head and, uh, you know, and have recovered like fairly quickly. But uh, to your point, there are many, many people who um, are living in hotels and, and not living at home. And, um, you know, I know the news cycle, I always say it, like, I know the news cycle has moved on, but there are still a lot of folks here just experiencing um, just a lot of fallout from, from the storm. So absolutely. And Robert, let me pivot back to your question, which was, um, oh, how is it, how is it affecting um, communities of color in Texas and, and thinking about our response? So, I mean, I will say this, right? At, um, I, I mean, I think one of the things that, that COVID and certainly the storm has highlighted is that, you know, food insecurity and hunger are very, very real issue. And, you know, oftentimes it, it lives in the shadows. And I think that the pandemic as well as this, this new crisis has really highlighted that, you know, this is, this is a real need and it is a solvable problem, right? And so, Robert, as we think about how, how to respond in Texas and just to give you all some context, you know, um, as of like currently, it's it's one in three kids here in Texas are not getting enough to eat. And before the pandemic, that number was one in five. So that's really significant. We have a really young population here in Texas, a lot of kids, a lot of schools you'll see um, everywhere. And now with the recent storms, leaving many families without water and power, um, you know, it, it like if you are if you are a person who is hanging on, you know, by, by a thread or your economic stability is not very stable. Um, you know, this was a real disaster in many ways. And what we've done to address that problem, I shared this with y'all earlier, we, we did some grants, right? We've done some grants since COVID and we're, we've allocated some dollars for some emergency grants, um, including Feeding Texas um, and supporting food banks in North Texas, Central Texas, Houston, and San Antonio. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, this is also kind of my number one message I just want to share with y'all. Um, we've also, uh, in collaboration with many of our partners, been working sure to make sure families know where they can help find food to feed their kids. And so what we've developed is a meal finder map and we've redeployed our text line. So we have a texting line that helps families find meals. Um, and you can text the word food or comida um, to the number 877-877. And what it'll do, it'll ask you your address and you can enter it and it'll tell you I'm sorry, where you and your family can go uh, nearby locally to get food. So I just want to oh, say wow. that again, if you are if you are in a community, if you are a community based uh, leader um, and, you know, folks who are trying to find uh, meals and food, text food or comida to 877-877. And the other thing that we are doing in response um, to folks who are already SNAP recipients is um we are, we are encouraging folks and trying to amplify the message to apply for, that they're eligible for replacement SNAP. And we're doing a really big push right now um, to get the words out to families through Ground Truth, Facebook ads. Um, and the ads basically says something like, you know, if you lost power, SNAP recipients can call 211. 
option two, uh, during business hours, and you can you can request replacement benefits. So replacement benefits is essentially what it sounds like. So if mm. you had a, a refrigerator full of food and you lost power, um, you know you could go you you can apply to replace the food that you lost, and that is a much quicker um, solution than some of the other things we explored. So those are some of the things that we're doing. That's right. Yeah. Shay, food or comida. Uh, it's a comida will come to you in Spanish. Uh, food will come to you in English. And that is, um, you know, it is a sure way to, to get folks connected to, to free meals um, for families. And what, what role, there's all this discussion about um, uh, the raising the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. uh, what role does that play in food insecurity? There was a question about that in uh, the chat. Um, Janine, I don't know. This is, did you want to speak on this? Sure, sure. So, um, sorry. Um, so I was just thinking of just all the different things that make up um, food insecurity. And a lot of that is just being at the fringes of poverty, right? This is a symptom of a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of times the social determinants that make up where you live, what you have access to, what resources are around you, that's going to have a bigger impact on whether you're going to be, you know, at that at that unstable place where a little bit of um, funds can help or hurt you. You know, you're making decisions between do I pay my light bill or do I get food? And mm -hmm. so one little thing or an illness or a car breaking down, that can just push you right into that sector where you are food insecure. And so it all adds up, it all makes a difference. Uh, and we just really need to look at the situations that people are born into and take that into account as being a big part of why certain people go hungry consistently and why other people do not. And in terms of just like relief funding, uh, across the nation and in hurricane, uh, the last hurricane here, the people who were getting relief were the affluent communities were getting resources. And so there's a system that's already in place. And if we don't acknowledge that, you know, systemic racism plays a role in all of this, right? And who's at risk. And this is just an outcome of that. It's the same thing we keep seeing the higher proportion of people of color, of black and brown communities right. who are suffering during this pandemic and during this storm and the aftermath of it. That's so, right. um, you know, to be aware and to continue to look for what, what Sheriff Strength is doing is making sure that they're looking with an equity lens and finding those organizations who are working in food justice, who are doing this work well already, and how can we learn from them and how can we create systems that will reach those communities? Because the forgotten just keep getting forgotten. And mm. so we are strategically working on all of our teams to find those lessons, to find those best practices and find ways to reach those communities by listening, by hearing what they're saying, by having them guide us and being able to find solutions that they come up with that we're able to support them in that and just really paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And Jean, I'll just, just add to that. I mean, Robert, we, we know, right. Like, 
you know, how we know what the income gaps are, right? Between, um, you know, and how dis disproportionate they are um, between men and women, among like people of color and white men, right? And, and like that is a very wide continuum. And so when you think about something like the minimum wage um, and determining, right, how that you're working full time, I mean, I'm sorry, I can't, the numbers escape me right now, but there, the, there is like the, a vast majority, or I shouldn't say majority, but a considerable number of people who are SNAP recipients are working families. They're people who work and hold full-time jobs and still cannot afford to kind of, you know, supplement. They need some supplement to, to make sure that there's food in their home. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think it, you know, food, Food justice is social justice, right? Is a social justice issue. When we think about like how our systems are designed, that they are working as designed, and you know, to, to Janine's point, right? When we think about equity and talk about it, not everybody stops at the, starts at the same start line, right? And and so um, I think you know, my team, as we think about kind of what equity means to, in in Texas and and how we think about our communities, you know. We really always try to ask ourselves, you know, who's impacted by this decision? Like, is their voice being heard? And like, how do we account for that across lines of difference? And so um, I think that is our work, right? We are doing some new learning. A lot of it's painful. A lot of it's, you know, a, a reckoning with yourself and thinking about your own, um, you know, complicity, right? And, and, and white supremacy and, and, and thinking about how um, we approach our work, but it is, it is the work. And that is, that is what is, you know, that is what our communities deserve. And that's, that's what we're doing. Wow. So one of the things I, I wanted to know is particular, I think that when we think about food insecurity, we typically try to put like a stereotypical face of like abject poverty on that. And we know that there's more nuances to where food insecurity um, occurs and just the complexity of it. And so I'd love for you just to educate those who are listening, like what are the things we don't know about food insecurity? How big is this issue? How uh, pervasive is this issue? How nuanced is the issue as it relates to um, food right. insecurity? I mean, Dr. Hayes, that is that is a question of many many answers, and Janine, uh, I'll tag you in in a minute. Okay. Uh, so, but oh, go ahead, Janine. Please oh, go ahead. I was just going to jump in because when you were talking, Stacy, it reminded me that when depending on who's going hungry, there's not a lot of compassion all the time, right? Depending on who goes hungry. During this pandemic, one thing that we have seen within our organization, working in this space, is that the non-traditional person has lost their job and they are facing hunger. They're in a food line for the very first time and they are realizing that this can happen to anyone. And there, there's a growth in compassion for people who are going hungry. Um, my hope is that that compassion will stay when the crisis is over, that these lessons that we're learning and that we've learned aren't just something we're gonna forget the whole taking care of ourselves, this whole um, importance of public health, the importance of uh, having systems in place so people aren't so close to that line of falling into food insecurity. And so it is nuanced, like Stacy was saying, but there's a lot of communities that you would not consider. Like there's pockets, especially even within communities that are affluent or even uh, higher income communities where everyone thinks, oh, well, they're good. But right. in those communities, it's even harder for people who are struggling 
to speak up or go to the food banks or look for resources because there's that shame aspect as well. And there's not a lot of support. Um, That's great. As yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, no, go no ahead, I was Stacey. just going to say, um, I, I think Denise, absolutely. There are a lot of, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call them secrets, but certainly pockets of poverty, even within affluent communities. And to Janine's point, right, it's even harder because the perception is that, you know, that that school's okay. If you, I used to work in SAI, San Antonio Independent School District, right? And those were schools that were 90, 95, 100% free and reduced lunch, right? And so it was, you know, it was a little, I guess, less stigmatized. Kind of everybody was uh, at, at, in the same place, um, but it certainly, it certainly trickles down to like you know our young folks in the community, or our students, our young people, and you know how how it makes them feel, right? And um, yes, I mean, I, I agree. COVID certainly exacerbated food insecurity. Thank you, Leah Van Bell, but it didn't create it. And no. um, you know, we're trying to think creatively and partner with schools to to really think about how we can address these issues. And one other thing that I'll mention in one other community, um, Dr. Hayes, is the immigrant community. So they're the community yes. that cannot come and step forward when it comes to federal nutrition programs because they need to provide a number. They need to, there's a lot of dis mistrust. Even yes. within schools, when we started, a lot of schools started um, giving out uh, free, free food for everyone because we switched uh, programs that were um, allowable during this time. When that happened, the, the children usually um, would go to school and give a number, right? Well, now they were picking up their uh, meals at the corner, at the curbside, and the parents didn't know what this number was. So they were like, whoa, like what's going on? Why is someone giving a number? Like how, how come we're being identified? And so that created some challenges yes. as well and needs okay. really just, um, you know, if you have the trust with the community, it's easier to have those conversations. But when you don't, that we lost, was it like 10,000, Stacey? Students? Students disappeared. Uh -huh. Oh, yes. They're unaccounted for. Wow. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's very challenging and troubling. Um, there's, it's definitely nuanced. And those are communities that are already under, the, you know, in the right. shadow. And That's so great. now they've gone deeper. Yeah. As, as we kind of wrap up, um, what, how can people in places like uh, Philadelphia, New Jersey, other parts of the country um, connect with you all, connect with Share Our Strength uh, to find out about the, um, the grant program, but also partnerships? And, um, and can you re-share the uh, text platform that uh, folks around the country can use one more time? Absolutely, Robert. Um, so that number again, just text it 877-877 and text the word food or comida. And that'll give you the meal finder map to help you um, figure out where is the you know closest place for you and your family to go. And then the other thing, if you are a current SNAP recipient or working with SNAP recipients, they and you're in Texas, they're eligible for SNAP placement. And you call two one one option two, and call that number, and they'll they'll you can apply for replacement staff at that time. So, Robert, thank you for letting me repeat that. And I would also say, right, I have my wonderful colleagues right in in New York and um, and Pennsylvania, and and you know as I mentioned, we have a presence within all fifty states. So, uh, we are our programs are you know have similarities, but they're different because our communities are different. Um, and we would love to, I'm happy to like share that information um, uh, where y'all, and I would just really direct y'all to the 
to the Share Our Strength website and the No Kid Hungry campaign, and you can find a lot of information there and hopefully connect with somebody in your state. And that would be nokidhungry.org. And as Stacy mentioned, thank you, Stacy, for sharing all those numbers. We have a ton of resources for principals, for um, nutrition directors, for um, people who want to implement different types of meal pattern programs, breakfast in the classroom, uh, grab and go breakfast and lunch, and innovative ways to increase meal participation. So that's what we work on in my department. And what you'll see in, in the Center for Best Practices is so much resources. We have um, case studies across the nation, what's working so that you're not having to reinvent the wheel. Like mm -hmm. I want to start this program, I want to start a coffee bar or I want to do a smoothie program. Well, guess what? It's already been done. Already Find that's these right. resources. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's no. share our education. Right. Faces. We always like to share. Um, That's right. Deal, share. I it's, right. it's all, all right. online. It's all yeah. online. You can download it. It's free. Mm -hmm. um, we encourage folks to, to, yeah, to utilize those resources because Absolutely. we work for the Center for Best Practices and that's exactly what they do. They just turn out incredible resources for us to share. Yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, Stacy and Janine for joining us. Um, and Ray Ankrum says he's looking for a smoothie bar grant for his okay. school in New York. Um, I'm sure Dr. Hayes and uh, Parker um, are doing the same. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interest in communities that I've talked to about the work. Um, so I want to thank you all for uh, joining us uh, this evening. Um, and again, for uh, folks to reach out um, and uh, you utilize 877 uh, to find uh, resources in communities. So uh, thank you all for uh, coming. I appreciate you. Our pleasure. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fellas. Yes. It is now time. It is now time. Hayes, you on mute. You're muted, Hayes. Because Hayes was talking. We actually have a food bank in New Jersey. I didn't get a, a moment to connect with the ladies about our food bank and how they can add to our food bank for our families, which happens the fourth Monday of every month in Camden, New Jersey at Mass Transport. I'm going to connect you to them. I'm going to connect you to them. Like, I think that for anybody who is listening to this, who's interested in um, uh, food banks and, like, uh, support, feel free to reach out to me. Ping me on Twitter. <coughs> Social media. Uh, make sure you do it before Hayes sends me a laundry list of things. Um, and let's go to this uh, video uh, that uh, uh, we have to share uh, for our discussion. She was killed, but you know, when you hang out with people with guns that shoot at cops, you're likely to get caught in the crossfire. Uh, I'm very sorry. I'm confused. Uh, Dr. G is on the on the on the announcements reading about what's her name, Brianna. Something that the one that was killed in the gunfire from the cops. She was hanging out with the guy who was wanted on charges. They knocked. They had that, and 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 he fired at them, and they fired back. You know, if you hang out with people who are criminals, and they shoot at a cop, you're likely to get caught in the crossfire. It does not matter what color your skin is, you're likely to get caught in the crossfire. I'm sorry, she's. I really, truly, I, I'm, it, it's sad that she put herself in that position. 
but she put herself in that position by hanging out with somebody she shouldn't have been with. That's her boyfriend, which means she can't be right now. Okay, here's the thing. She was with her boyfriend who was a criminal. That's not, that was her ex-boyfriend. They came to the wrong house. Yeah, they came, oh, bro, what? That was his ex-boyfriend. He didn't live there anymore. Did he fire the first shot? No, nobody, nobody shot anything. They, they, the cops shot first. Was self, if he shot, that was self-defense anyways, because that was the wrong house they was at. Come on, forensic science. Okay. If you got a no-knock warrant, and, and besides that, I, I'll tell you right now. The right guy was already in custody earlier that day. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like I said, I'm sorry she's dead, but and he did, they actually have proof that he fired at them first. Now, let's talk about that. Let's talk about you need to be writing everything. Listen, man, y'all have to help make this make sense for me right here, right? Please. Make this make sense. So for, for those who didn't, just, just to provide a little bit more context, this was a video from a school district, Pebble Brook School District, where a teacher in that forensic science class. So here's the thing that's, that's driving me crazy, right? It's Black History Month. She just said the principal was on, on, on the loudspeaker speaking about this individual, probably related to something to Black history, bringing awareness. Then this woman, this this chick has the audacity to say Brianna, what's her name, Simpson, but then also say, I'm sorry to hear she, she's dead, but you ain't sorry to hear she did. You can't even pronounce her name correctly after the principal just said it over the loudspeaker. This Yo, right it's, here. It's the I'm sorry, it's the I'm sorry she's dead, but like, like, bro. Like, she's dead and then you put a butt at the end of it like yo black lives and the the death of a black life is followed by a butt in every instance they are dead but i'm sorry it happened but on, yo that was wrong this is crazy to me this is this she's teaching children this is exactly she she's teaching t children and she's so confident with it She's confident giving information like this is what happens when you hang around bad people. What the what are you talking about? Yes, yes, preacher. What the <laughs> what are you talking about? F-bomb in the sermon. Listen, what are you talking? And, and then here, can I be very serious though about it? Like this the sad thing is, you know, these are not random incidents, right? right. Like people might think this is just you know, one incident that may have occurred. No, this is happening in schools throughout. It's just that somebody recorded this one and we I got it on video, right? But how many times in a classroom where you have a teacher bringing racist ideas out on kids and man, big up to these students who sat there and just like, no, 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 that, that does not make sense. Even a young brother said, come on, forensic science, you gotta be better than this. Like we, we gotta be better because and then the sad thing for me is this Black History Month, the principal is probably trying to highlight something, but yet this teacher is bringing trauma against these kids by speaking against the truth and trying to get them 
to, to hear another side of the story when they know the facts. And how traumatic is it when you are getting this information on the, when somebody is trying to bring awareness and lifting something up, and now this person is bringing trauma to you right now when you got the facts and the information, and it's like, no, that's not true. Yes, the hell it is true. What are you talking about? Where did you get your information to the point where she had to pause and, and kind of recollect like, oh, okay, I, I, I didn't know that. Like, if you didn't know that, just shut up and say, you know what, I apologize. I don't think I know what's going on here, sure. guys. Let me just take a step back. Those youngins were better than I would have been because, man, like, I couldn't imagine as a parent if my son came home and Come told on. me that this actually happened in his class. Come on. Like, as a parent of a black boy, for him to come up to me after school and share that with me, I have to ask some serious questions about who's teaching our babies in schools. Like, that That just... I, I just it's shocking. I will say this. One, I want to commend the young king and queen that's in their video that just held like such absolute mature composure. Like mm -hmm. that is actually a statement I would have said when I really want to go off on you, but I want to move this meeting along where I'm just gonna say, you know what, let's just get back to science. Cause, cause you're really about to take me there. And I think every person, every adult listening to that is actually in that same moment with that child at that moment, right? right? Let me just let you move on before I really go off and before things get real ugly and nasty. The thing I have the biggest issue with, and this might actually be a message to black people in general, it didn't take, right? This this whole movement, there was a whole movement around, say her name, Brianna Taylor, like say her name, and she's like, Brianna, what's her name? So all this shouting around, say her name, as we kick off Women's History Month, it didn't take, right? All of that marching, all of that pleading, all of that kind of moral, you know, outline of why you should care did not take for everyone because they still don't know her name. And you're still trying to create a narrative in which black people are to blame for their own wrongful deaths. That somehow, no matter how good you are, how great you are, how amazing, how the circumstances portray, you are responsible for your own death. And so to the point around like this, this idea that we can acknowledge the loss of black life, but there's always a but after that acknowledgement, no matter the context in which the life was lost, murdered, taken, stolen. Man, like on, a, on another note, I want to move to uh, make it make sense. And there's this whole thing that I think I shared with you brothers earlier around Oberlin College and their celebration of Black History Month and Black music with all white folks on the advertisement. It was all over uh, Twitter, Oberlin uh, put out an apology. Um, and I'll admit, I was kind of surprised it was Oberlin because Oberlin was one of the first colleges to um, uh, admit black black folks. And like, they've had a long standing tradition. I was, I was as someone who is still teaches in higher ed, has been a professor, I was a little shocked that it was Oberlin. Other places, I probably wouldn't have been uh, uh, shocked, but I just wanna get y'all take um, 
on this whole situation in Oberlin where like, I mean, again, I thought it was, I, I, I was, I was like somebody messing with me, but I literally looked at Oberlin's website and they were apologizing for, for the whole scene. So what's, what's y'all take or make it make sense for me? Cause I, I'm confused. Man, for, for I'm like you, brother. When you when I saw that image, I said, "Is this a joke? Like this can't be real." We're celebrating black artistry, and all I see is white faces. Like, did it not register to anybody? Even after what Hayes just said, when all of this stuff that has happens from June and bringing awareness, and we talk about equity, all of these conversations of people creating these. DIE positions and all of these things that the, the the corporations and schools, and yet we're talking about black artistry and all I see is white faces. You mean to tell me there's nobody at Oberlin, no black person at Oberlin that could have been a part of that, that Oberlin could have pulled in? It just tells me that you could be in spaces and talk about black people, but not have black people involved. How can you talk about a culture and not have those individuals represented in the conversation. Like what kind of, that's like a white supremacist mindset to me that you're gonna talk about people's culture and artistry and their work, but don't even include the people in the conversation. That's, that that does, it's, it's crazy to me. After, again, after Doc already brought up Dr. Hayes that all of the stuff that has happened in this year, yet we're still having this, this conversation, man. Right. Again, these are not one off instances. We see what happened in the high school. Now we see what's happening at, at the college level and people apologizing. Like, come on, man. We don't want the apology. We don't want the apology. Go ahead, Doc, Dr. Hayes. Well, this is within two weeks, Doc. Like this is within. So we, we talked about the, the the teacher in the ridiculousness. Right. Then we got Oberlin. We didn't even mention and our producer doesn't have this. But did you see the teacher that called the kid racist who wore the black Black is King t-shirt in Oklahoma. Like, we're not talking about, like, yo, y'all thought stuff was cake, right? We done protested. Everybody got a, a DEI program, an initiative happening in their networks and programs. You probably done hired, you know, a chief equity officer somewhere in your network. So we good. No, it's still right. jacked up. Still more and work. So this is like a culmination of, like, white supremacy and white privilege. That's right. Privilege, the privilege says I your presence outside of this whiteness is insignificant. I don't have to know your name. I don't have to acknowledge your name. I don't have to show representation of you even when I am celebrating. Like, the idea that you would create a program that is in a celebration of Black history and Black History Month and Black music, and that no one from the person who made the flyer, the person who created the program, the person who printed the flyer, posted the flyer, nobody's looked at this and said, yo, this is a gang of white folk. I don't even care if the whole program, I don't care if everybody that's a part of the production committee is white. You should have put somebody black on the end. Like, it's a level of like consideration and thoughtfulness and critique of self that is just absent from so many organizations, programs, as it relates to just diversity we can't even have the conversation. You can't figure out how to produce a flyer for Black History Month that has Black people on it. What are we talking about? Oh, man. I mean, that is uh, keeping it 100 for real. We got uh, something popping up here. Uh, looks like uh, Ray's 
popping up, popping up a video. Yeah, of the young she brother. She said that if she had a shirt that said "White Queen," it would have been racist. The and after she said the double standards after that, but like then after that's when she said like we need a white history month. And I said we don't black people don't have enough recognition, and we barely learn about black people like in February at my school. So she said that if she had like the fact that our young black and brown children are put in a cell, put in a position. Right. Where they should be able to receive, right? They should be able to receive education, knowledge, support, you know, empathy. But they have to educate the people in front of them, the people who get a check, the people who are supposedly certified, went to school for this. I've got to educate you on the appropriate way in which to educate and support me based on the context I live in. That young man should never have to explain to this teacher why a black is king shirt is not racist. And she should never feel comfortable enough to say, what if I wore a white as king shirt? Man, I, I want to I want us to end on a high note and a positive note. No, no, Simmons, you don't get to transition. Ankle can go to sleep in about 20 more minutes. We don't get to just, you know, listen, they get to say this spiel. That whole speech around Breonna Taylor and why, you know, her death is her fault, that lasted for about six minutes. I can at least take four minutes. To talk about why all of this is backed up and ruined. But Both hey, let's 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 come in hot for Women's History Month. You got it. Let's, let's let's celebrate um, black women, women of color that are standing out in our community uh, as we begin um, uh, Women's History Month. Uh, and I want to kick it to Parker to. Uh, celebrate and uh, elevate uh, someone in your community, in your uh, network, um, who's a black woman or a woman of color um, that is doing amazing work and impacting uh, the community. Yes, man, I, I wanna shout out uh, State Representative Joanna McClinton right here in, in the state mm. of Pennsylvania. She is the first African-American and woman to uh, be elected as the House Democratic caucus chair. So she, she's got a lot of firsts right there. Um, one of the things I, I love about it, she's born and raised in Southwest Philly um, and she stays connected to the community. Um, in the midst of everything that's happening with the gun violence right here in Philadelphia, she's on the ground, uh, making connections, doing the work, supporting the families of, of murder victims. Uh, and then she's using her her leverage at the state level to get to get laws passed that benefits the people from uh, from her com uh, community. So I just have to give a huge shout out to State Rep Joanna McClinton for just holding it down and being the first uh, to hold her uh, the role that she's holding uh, in the state of Pennsylvania and and coming right from Southwest Philadelphia. So that's who I want to give uh, a shout out to uh, on this Women History on uh, Women's History Month. Hayes, what you got? Absolutely. One well, shout out to just all the amazing women out there. Um, just want to shout y'all out. Women are just so amazing. Thank you all for what you do for just supporting and holding up this entire country, right? So we, we just could not do it without the support of women and just the leadership of women. My shout out for Women's History Month goes to Misha Ross Porter the newly appointed chancellor of New York City Public Schools. Uh, she is actually the first uh, African-American female uh, chancellor of New York City Public Schools, which is actually quite surprising um, 
here in 2021, we are still doing firsts, even in a city so diverse as New York City. And so she comes in after the most recent uh, chancellor, Richard Carranza, uh, resigned. And so she um, takes on a huge task, thinking about how she will lead New York City public schools um, through the pandemic and post-pandemic. Um, important, I actually met her, me and Sharif were talking about this earlier in today. I'm not even sure where, it was at some principal conference, but from what I remember, she's definitely a, a people's leader, right? And so she speaks mm. um, in her story is deeply rooted in the stories of her families and the students that she served. She's a former principal uh, in New York City. She's a former graduate of a New York City high school. Um, she was formerly the leader of um, the superintendent, area superintendent of the Bronx. Um, district. And so just want to shout her out for just the, the huge lift she's taking on in the middle of a pandemic. And just in terms of like magnitude, there are over 1 million students in New York City public schools. 1 million students. And even if you just took the Bronx alone, it would be the 13th largest school district in our country. And so just thinking about the number of lives that she is impacting in this position uh, as yeah. a Black woman in leadership in New York City public schools, I just want to shout her out and give her much love, light, and support as she takes on this new task. Yeah, I appreciate that, Hayes. I want to continue with the education theme and shout out um, two dope um, Black women who are school leaders. One is Katrina Shelby. She's at Kramer Middle School. Uh, there was an article about her and another principal in uh, D.C. Uh, for their work around connecting with families during uh, the pandemic. Um, so definitely want to shout out uh, Katrina, Katrina Shelby um, Katrina at Kramer Middle School in District of Columbia Public Schools. Also want to shout out uh, one of the longest serving um, employees in the Detroit Public Schools, uh, Marlene Coakley. Uh, she is the uh, proud principal of Greenfield Union. Um, and as a school leader, she um, started as a teacher's aide. Um, her mother, Patricia Foster, uh, retired as an early childhood teacher recently. Um, so just want to shout out Marlene Coakley and her leadership at Greenfield Union um, in uh, my city, uh, Detroit, and, and just appreciate both of their leadership, uh, both of their uh, leadership journeys and contributions to our community. Um, I want to thank um, our guests from uh, Share Our String. I want to uh, thank all of our listeners who have uh, joined um, and uh, who listen to the show regularly. Um, I also want to give love and respect to um, Hayes and Parker, because <coughs> unlike myself, they are on the ground uh, with young people um, and families in a very different way that um, uh, I am. Um, and you know, I just want to acknowledge y'all brothers um, for what y'all do um, every day uh, for young people um, in uh, your uh, community. So just want to shout uh, y'all out. Uh, thank you everybody for joining. You have uh, joined us for another episode of Three Times Dope podcast coming in hot. Peace y'all. See y'all next.